Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagra Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. President Biden spearheaded a consequential G7 meeting in Germany and a pivotal NATO summit in Madrid that saw a flurry of activity as the alliance prepares for a prolonged confrontation with Russia in the wake of its brutal attack on Ukraine that is now in its fifth month. Turkey has dropped its opposition to Finland and Sweden, joining NATO in exchange for pledges to be tougher on terrorism, dealing a major blow to Moscow by further enlarging the Atlantic Alliance and bringing it right up to Russia's doorstep. Western weapons have given Ukraine new capabilities that allowed it to retake Snake Island outside Odessa, but Russia continues to grind forward in Donetsk and Luhansk, while also stepping up terror attacks aimed at weakening Ukrainian resolve, striking apartment blocks in Kiev, a shopping mall in Kremenchuk, and just today, residential neighborhoods in Odessa. In Asia, Chinese Premier Xi Jinping made his first major trip to Hong Kong to mark the 25th anniversary of the city's handover from British to Chinese rule, that's seen Beijing violate its pledge of one country, two systems, effectively crushing its tradition of freedom and democracy. And in Israel, former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett has said he will not stand for election as Bibi Netanyahu prepares to return to office. Oh, and the Supreme Court effectively ruled the EPA can't interpret congressional environmental legislation, dealing a blow to the U.S. government's regulatory ability that goes far beyond its ability to fight climate change. This as the Pentagon grapples with the implications of the high court's recent decisions on guns, abortion, and religion. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Heather Connolly, the president of the German Marshall Fund of the United States, Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now affiliated with the Center for a New American Security, former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations, and our very own producer, Chris Cervello, a retired United States Navy Commander and Public Affairs Officer, who is also the co-founder of the ProVision Advisors PR firm. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Gumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And we are a fra- and we are a proud Farnborough International Airshow Media Partner. Uh, and our coverage of Britain's leading air show is sponsored by Farnborough International. Check out our Cavus Ships podcast hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog each week on naval and maritime issues. And tune into the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. With that gigantic mouthful, mouthful out of the way, everybody, thanks very much for joining us, especially you, Heather. It's been a while since you've joined us, so congratulations on your uh, n- uh, not-so-new uh, uh, gig uh, at, the, uh, at the German Marshall Fund. Uh, and uh, you and Jim are both freshly back uh, from Madrid uh, and from the summit. And I wanted, uh, Heather, to give you a chance to start us off because I know you're going to be able to only join us briefly this morning. Uh, as the stage setter, from your standpoint, I mean, it's been an extremely consequential uh, summit. Uh, as we were talking here, you were saying we are in the season of consequential meetings. The question is follow through and Dove wrote a great piece in the Hill uh, about that. But start us off. What were the key takeaways from your standpoint as somebody who has enjoyed uh, and suffered through many of these summits? 
Well, uh, thanks so much, Vago. Uh, it was consequential, and it was consequential because um, the uh, Turkey, Sweden, and Finland were able to come through with a path forward uh, to allow uh, Sweden and Finland to uh, to proceed with their membership uh, towards NATO. I think if that would not have happened, and let me assure you, uh, even you know the eve before the summit began, it was absolutely unclear that they would reach agreement. So that was really, I think, something that shifted the momentum of the summit, and people sort of began to really again, celebrate how significant uh, this is for NATO to, to gain two very capable allies. It is a security plus for NATO, another uh, underscoring Putin's strategic miscalculation again. Um, and so that was big. Barring that, I think this, this summit would have been uh, had a very, very different uh, tenor to it. Now, having said that, we are not out of the woods yet uh, about Sweden and Finland formally joining the, the alliance, because now we switch to every member uh, having to ratify an amended uh, NATO treaty. Uh, the, the, the ink was not dry on this trilateral mem memorandum between Turkey, Sweden, and Finland until President Erdogan uh, began saying uh, they're not implementing this agreement. Sweden needs to extradite 73 people. Sweden, of course, disputes that. Uh, and, you know, Turkey may hold up ratification until this is resolved again. So hate to kill a good news story with a bad news story, but we have to watch this very carefully. The second thing that I think was, was really powerful uh, as an outcome of the summit was the, the really the re-strengthening of NATO. So the decisions uh, for the U.S. to put uh, now increase the number of destroyers at Rota, uh, turning Poland's, the, the Army Fifth Corps, into a permanent headquarters, placing a, a rotational uh, BCT in Romania for the, for the U.S. and a whole bunch of strengthening uh, F-35 squadrons in the U.K., Italy, Germany, getting a little bit more enhancements. But the big missing gap, and I'm sure Jim wants to, to weigh in on this, I thought the real missing issue was the, the Baltics. Um, really big questions about prepositioned equipment, how much of the rotational force we're going in. And so for me, that's the unanswered question, particularly as there's so much focus right now on Lithuania and the transit corridor between Russia and Kaliningrad. Uh, so we've got more work to do, but, but that was really good. And finally, the strategic concept, eh, you know, it was, uh, it was catching up with reality. I'm never too bothered by what that says, because that's really, it's more important what we do than in some ways what we say. Um, I, I should point out, right, I mean, when you uh, talked about the Polish headquarters, uh, it, that headquarters, it's going to be in Poland, right, which is uh, going to you know, irritate the Russians. And as far as I'm concerned, that's great, because they've, they've really been the aggressor now for many, many years. And we've sort of been whistling past that graveyard. And it's good that we're recognizing and realizing the, you know, uh, the uh, founding uh, act is 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 just uh, is is just theater, um, and obviously taking rapid reaction forces from forty thousand to three hundred thousand. I think we discussed that last week in a one billion dollar uh, technology fund as well uh, to focus on emerging technologies and indeed sort of declaring Russia as the adversary. Heather, from from your standpoint, right? I mean, as we were preparing for this. And, and all of us on this podcast have been discussing this for some time, right? It's, it's about staying power. We're impressed that the Alliance uh, and the EU have had the, the staying power and actually been as tough as they've been. The question isn't just the promises, uh, again, to Dove's piece uh, that, that we will discuss shortly. Do you think the Alliance has the staying power, especially as 
Russia still has an enormous number of tools in its toolbox, right? It's going to use energy as a weapon increasingly. It's dialing down to make sure that Europeans freeze next winter. Uh, one of the reasons why Emmanuel Macron, for example, uh, warned Joe Biden uh, as overheard on a microphone, right? You're not going to get that much from the Gulf and the Saudis. You guys have got to start pumping more oil uh, and, and energy. Do you think that there will be the staying power or is the alliance going to and, and the EU going to prove us wrong on this? Because, for example, Olaf Scholz has sought to, you know, and Emmanuel Macron, right? I mean, that's why it was so powerful that Macron, Scholz and Draghi went and said what they did in Kiev. The question is not what they say, but what they do, right? I mean, do, does the alliance have the staying power from your perspective? And what are the well, pitfalls and how do we maintain that staying power? Because even, you know, even though Washington says positive things, then there's concern that, that Washington is, is wavering by saying, well, we're not sure, you know, Ukraine will be able to retake the territory it's lost. So look, this is always uh, going to be a race between Russian brutality and Ukrainian and Western resistance. And we are just really entering the first part of that race, to be honest with you. So it is the competing geopolitical demands, particularly of the United States. I know Patrick's going to talk about that because, look, our national defense strategy says that China remains the pacing challenge, the strategic challenge of our times. Yet we are you know, maintaining this robust focus, rightly, on Russia and strengthening uh, the transatlantic relationship. But you can feel this tension. I think it'll play out in the NDAA process as well. The more we give to Europe, that's you know the less we have to offer uh, to the Indo-Pacific region. But it, as far as staying power, again, we are just in the early stages um, of this crisis. It's going to demand a huge amount of economic support from the United States uh, and our allies to Ukraine. You already began to see some tensions in the um, $40 billion uh, supplemental that Congress uh, passed, that there's now some concern, hey, prices are high here. Um, we've got to pay more attention uh, in the US and again, towards China. How long are we going to keep doing this? Well, we have to keep doing this for a while. You're absolutely right. Look, we, we have a gas crisis right now in Europe, and this is before anything has happened. Um, I am very concerned about uh, this fall and winter and literally uh, Europe not having enough energy uh, to, to keep its economy going, particularly in Germany. And then you have this, uh, you know, the, the tensions between uh, Western Europe and Central and Eastern Europe. And again, you can feel those tensions uh, continue to play out every time uh, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz suggests that, um, you know, we got to keep our, our eyes focused on our long-term relationship with Russia. We're, we're missing that point. His national security advisor just said that a week and a half ago. Uh, you have President Macron, who now has a very dynamic domestic situation, something that he has never encountered. He's going to continue to uh, emphasize where his unique and un unilateral strength is in foreign and security policy, uh, this European political community that just came out of nowhere, he's going to keep doing that. Uh, these new ideas, just to make sure that again, France has a very powerful voice um, at the geopolitical table. So this gets more complicated. And of course, as you noted, our domestic picture is getting more and more complicated as well. So this is the race and Putin thinks that we will not stand united that all of these divisions will erode support for another sanctions package for more military support. And we have to prove him wrong because I assure you, if we don't get Ukraine right, 
the Chinese understand that we cannot hold united when um, large powers decide that they're going to take matters into their own hands and invade uh, and occupy smaller neighboring countries. And that's that's why the stakes are so high right now in getting this war uh, right and that our allies and the United States remain firm and committed um, to, to its victory. Indeed. And, and what's reassuring, at least in terms of the rhetoric and how the administration has connected this crisis uh, to China and saying, actually, it's one crisis uh, and not two separate ones. Heather, thanks so very much. Hope you have a great Independence uh, Day uh, holiday and look forward to having you back on again soon. It's been too long. Thanks so well, much. Great to be with you. Happy Fourth of July, all. Thanks again to Heather. Jim, uh, take it away, right? Uh, you were you were there. What are some of the uh, nuances and elements and takeaways from your perspective? Uh, and then uh, Dove want want to go to you, Patrick, and and then and then and then to Chris. Jim, take it away. Well, thanks, Alvago, and it's great uh, to have Heather on. And she did a wonderful job uh, there, being the master of ceremonies for a couple of those panels. Um, what I would what I would say is that uh, a couple things. One is that this did not have a China dominant theme that it might have had six months ago uh, before the invasion, when the administration particularly was pushing NATO to have more of a role in dealing with the rise of China and its implications for Europe. Uh, instead, uh, it was dominated by Ukraine, uh, uh, you know, full up. Uh, two year, a year and a half ago would have been all about climate change and COVID-19. You know, that was the NATO 2030. That was a, where the section was going. And that would have been a big theme uh, that uh, certainly the section would have pushed. And that was really pushed to the back, uh, climate change, et cetera. There's a little bit on that, but it was all about Ukraine. Um, and the mood music for the whole summit was certainly improved by uh, the, uh, the Turkish lift of their hold on uh, Sweden, uh, and Finland, and uh, that came as a surprise. It was something that uh, I think everyone was so glad was finally behind us as an alliance, because that certainly cast shadows on uh, unity. Uh, and, and that was the, the big theme coming out of this was this unity and that decision by Turkey and uh, uh, Turkey and Sweden, Finland uh, added quite a bit to making it this a bit more of a joyous occasion. There is a lot more to go in terms of their membership, but as an issue, this scratchy issue uh, that uh, Turkey introduced, having that behind us meant that the, uh, the theme of unity became certainly uh, more powerful. And uh, despite uh, the misgivings and the hand-wringing in a lot of capitals about the future, and, and Heather certainly laid all that out, I think in terms of the public face at the summit, despite those concerns and capitals, the alliance had a almost an exuberance when it came to being together, hanging together and trying to keep things on a sustained basis. Um, one thing though, that we, we certainly should talk about a little bit is the uh, force posture decisions made both by NATO and by the United States. And I think it's important we keep those two separate. Uh, NATO's decisions, uh, certainly the centerpiece was the NATO response force going from 40,000 to 300,000 and how in the world, how in the world are they gonna do that? Uh, not, not, I'm, I'm happy for the decision, but it's going to be a heavy lift. Uh, and we can talk about why they needed to do that. Uh, but the U.S. decisions on our own bilateral basis, as far as our own force posture, uh, that was quite significant, um, not necessarily in terms of mass, but in terms of the types of forces, the types of capability that we have doubled down on in Europe. Uh, that certainly did send signals how, of our seriousness of the kind of high end that we bring, of the potential fight that we might have on our hands, 
Fifth Corps forward was made a permanent um, presence in Poland. It wasn't going to be rotational, but again, it's the forward headquarters for the Fifth Corps. So, um, I mean, it's these, these things symbolize uh, and represent uh, moves ahead of us uh, if things get bad. And I, and I find that one spoke to me particularly. The two ships going into Rota, we're going to have now a total of six Aegis-class destroyers in there, show that the Navy, and I'm sure it was a fight between the Indo-Pacific hands and the European hands. I'm sure the Navy didn't want to give up home porting in the United States, two ships to send to Europe because that makes Congress unhappy. Uh, but, but the Navy went along and the administration got what it wanted, which was to plus up uh, those, those ships there. And the need is certainly relevant. Uh, we have a bigger mission now for the U.S. Navy. You know, in the past few years, uh, Navy ships were the target of, of uh, very aggressive tactics by the Russians, both on sea and in the air. And so these ships will be doing more than missile defense, which is their original uh, mission there, NATO missile defense. They're going to do a lot of presence in the Black Sea, Baltic Sea, Norwegian Sea. They're going to be busy. Uh, and so while it's just two ships, it was, a, it was, a, it was tough to get them there. And uh, the need is there. The Navy's going to meet it, and we're glad to, to see that. There's other things to talk about, too. The two squadrons going into the U.K. of F-35s, you know, putting them back of the, of the forward line of battle, if you will, uh, to protect them. Uh, and, I mean, there's a lot of things that the U.S. showed that we could do both China, Indo-Pacific, as well as Europe. And I, and I just to foot stomp that, you know that there's continuing to be a knife fight within the administration between the Asia hands and the Europeanists. The Asia hands bureaucratically are a stronger group than the Europe uh, hands. Uh, the, uh, the Kirk Campbell leads quite a massive army of, uh, of, of Asia hands. And uh, it could easily have gone the other way where we just gave it a lick and a promise in Europe. Uh, and, and, but instead, I think they were able to balance it out so that we still keep our focus on the pacing challenge, which is China, Roger that. Uh, but I think Europe certainly got its due, and I appreciate that the fact that the, Europe, the Europeanists won a, won a round, uh, and I think we did the right thing there. So, so that's just on the force posture side. Before I bring uh, Dove uh, in uh, and, and, and move on, why is it so necessary to increase uh, that uh, ready force? Uh, and I understand to, to 300,000 from 40,000. You know, why is that, was that, you know, because you said we, we can discuss that and I don't think you did. Why is it important for us to increase that uh, footprint? There's a couple of reasons. Uh, and it, what we're doing is we're building on uh, this uh, high readiness force that started uh, uh, with the, with the, uh, with the uh, Wales Summit, quite frankly, the VJTF, the Very High Readiness Joint Task Force that came out of that original Russian invasion of Crimea and the NATO response. Uh, it took the NATO Response Force, which actually we developed uh, when uh, General Jim Jones was the SAC here. He said he needed a rapid reaction force. And this was well before Russia became the aggressor that we see today. And it started off small. Uh, after Wales, it became more ready and, and a bit larger. And now it's gone to 300,000 because we know we've got certainly a bigger frontier. We're going to have to be able to cover in terms of follow on forces at a minimum. If you look at it, if you look at the frontiers being the tip top of Norway all the way down to the Black Sea, Bulgaria, Romania, particularly, but Turkey's in there, too. We're going to need to be able to um, to have a ready force that can move to reinforce, whether it's in the Baltics or wherever it might be, uh, that we'll need to be able to quickly reinforce. NATO has always had a problem with ground force readiness, always. 
and with the logistics that go with that. So if you look at what's you look at the kind of fighting we could see, uh, you know, based on what's happened in Ukraine and also the additional capabilities that Russia has, we can't rely on a 40,000 person force uh, to be that ready force uh, to, to back up the, the battle groups in the Baltics or another rotational battle group in Romania. We need to have forces that are, that are more numerous uh, and more capable and more ready to move. NATO has this issue where their readiness uh, drops off uh, after you get out of these uh, high readiness forces. The readiness drops off to like 90 days. Well, you can't wait 90 days uh, in, a, in a fight like this. So we needed to have this mass. We needed to have this additional force structure at a higher state of readiness and capability. But let me tell you, it's easy to say that this is what we need to do, but getting there is gonna really be hard. Uh, as you know, re high, higher readiness forces are expensive. Uh, they've gotta have the right kit. They right. gotta have the right training. Um, so it's a heavy lift, uh, and, the, and we've got to be committed to that. And final word on this, Vago, is that if the thinking is that the 300,000 will be made up of a, largely of U.S. forces, they got another thing coming. That's not going to happen, certainly politically, and also I don't think we have the forces to do it. Uh, this is something the allies are going to have to really step up to more than the U.S., and look, there are massive industrial-based challenges here as well, right? I mean, for us to replenish our own stocks of javelin stingers, what have you, uh, is is a big deal. And it's you know we're not going to get to four thousand weapons uh, a year for another two years, I think. Uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's some sometime in the future. And the challenge is even more acute for our European allies and partners that simply don't have the production capacity uh, that that we do. So even when they're trying to fill. Uh, N-law stocks uh, and NASAMs and what have you, uh, it becomes uh, it becomes a problem. Obviously, it's a ch right. challenge for the Russians, uh, but it's a more acute challenge uh, for for uh, us. Um, Dove, um, you know, we you know, as as uh, Jim alluded and certainly Heather, um, you know, all of us have covered uh, NATO uh, summits and pronouncements and they just take a long time the high readiness task forces don't materialize as quickly or as with as many folks as we wanted. Everybody has a tendency of making grand pronouncements and dialing them down. You wrote a great piece uh, that ran uh, in the Hill today, NATO and Biden must act now on their promises. And indeed promises are long. Although I have to admit deliverables have been pretty darn good uh, as well. From your standpoint, what's the trick of getting this right? Because, you know, I mean, there's a lot of self-interest that drives this. Macron wants to stay in power. Schultz wants to stay in power. The, the, you know, when people are cold and starving in the streets, it's hard to say, wait a minute, you know, Ukraine is about freedom and deterring China, right? You, you can't eat that. The record that NATO has of keeping its promises is pretty spotty. Um, you know, and I wrote in 1952, uh, I was alive, but many weren't yet. Uh, NATO, and this is right, you know, Stalin is still alive. Uh, you've got the Cold War has really revved up. NATO promises that it's going to really expand its forces. Uh, it was, and it was a meeting in Lisbon. It never happened. And then, of course, you can fast forward to the Wales summit. You know, now they're promising they're going to hit 2% by 2024, those that haven't hit it yet. And there are a bunch that haven't hit it yet. So you get a lot of promises, you get a lot of the right verbiage, and then there's something else as well. It's all very nice to go from 40,000 to 300,000. And as Jim says, that that's quite a stretch. But if you look at 
what actually consists of the units that are there as a vanguard. Right now, out of that 40,000, you're probably at around 5,000 that are ready to go right now, and maybe 20,000 that are ready to go within a few days. So the question of how that 30,000, 300,000, excuse me, is going to break out is a major question, because in the case of uh, the Baltic states, uh, a week may not be enough to stop the Russians. Uh, so there's that issue. And then there's the question of, yes, Mr. Biden has definitely done the right thing. Uh, we now have permanent uh, uh, headquarters in Poznan with the, the Fifth Corps, V Corps. Um, and he's basically telling Mr. Putin, hey, look, you know, your demands were that we get out of everything we were doing after 1997. You've broken all the rules. We don't care what you think. We're going to permanently deploy. Good on Biden. However, he hasn't said a word about what he's going to do inside the Baltic states. And what I'm being told by senior DOD officials is, well, you know, we've got people there. We're going to keep rotating. Ain't good enough. You want to deter the Russians you've got to have something permanent in each of those states. And given that you're now going to have, you already have a brigade headquarters in Poznan, even though it's uh, not permanent, but it's going to be permanent, um, you should be able to control a battalion in each of the Baltic states. So that needs to be done. And it needs to be done now because uh, I've received a briefing recently from uh, the Bank of Finland and, who are very, very good about these things. And they're basically saying, you know, not only is Putin making a lot more money now because of the oil sales and the taxes on oil, but he can finance this war for at least a couple of years. And so then the question arises, what happens after the 22 election? What, you know, do we get tired of this? All the issues that Heather and Jim both talked about. Uh, and finally, finally, there's the issue of Turkey. And here, Yogi Berra, that great philosopher, was absolutely right. It ain't over till it's over. He's already making noises about the parliament, maybe not ratifying uh, uh, Sweden and Finland's membership simply because he doesn't, you know, he's not sure that they will actually carry out their promises. And he, he insists that has to come first. And then remember, in 2003, whatever you think of the Iraq war, in 2003, we were going to move the 4th Infantry Division through Turkey to attack Iraq from the north. And the parliament said no. And that took care of that. And we were shocked. I remember we sent Paul Wolfowitz, who felt he was very close to Turkey, went out there, just was stonewalled. So we really have to be careful because Mr. Mr. Uh, Erdogan may want to take a second bite of the apple, may want more concessions, may want them from us, may want them from NATO. Who the heck knows? He's announced that he's running for president, so he's got to play to his domestic uh, uh, constituency and the domestic public. This is not over yet. And you take it all together. Yes, it's been a terrific Madrid summit. Now let's see what happens. I remember that time, and that's because we were listening to Demirel and not to Erdogan, right? He was trying to break the hold over the army and Oz and everybody else. So it was a very complex time uh, at, at, the, uh, at the time. Um, Patrick, let me uh, bring you uh, into the conversation. Uh, how did Beijing see uh, the last week, the G7 uh, and the NATO uh, meetings? And what are the, the kind of the takeaways, right? Because she wasn't just basking and marveling in Hong Kong at this. You know, I think he was probably paying some pretty close attention to what was going on on the other side of the world. 
she was paying attention very much to that. But I think Biden and she were basically taking victory laps around different races. You know, if, if, if Joe Biden was declaring NATO unity um, and having rallied and unified and now expanded NATO, or at least pretended to uh, or begun the process of expanding NATO um, and embracing a new strategic concept, Xi Jinping has proclaimed the greater China is a success by going to Hong Kong, his first trip uh, since COVID, um, and essentially pronouncing the end of one country, two systems, and, uh, even though he claimed, no, it's just beginning. Um, it, it really is, um, for Xi Jinping, um, also launching a third aircraft carrier this past month, um, a way of saying that China's not going to be stopped by anybody from uh, progressing on the China dream. And, and that's really a different race from what Biden and NATO are, are doing right now with Russia. Um, so it, it's a great victory for uh, Summitry in terms of uh, Madrid for the president. Um, and I think now the, the challenge, as we've just heard from, from, from the others, is, is not to lose this long war uh, that Ukraine is now in and that we are behind, um, because that's the best way to avert a war in Asia. And Xi Jinping is very much saying we're going to keep growing uh, the Chinese uh, state and, and party state. Um, and we're going to not going to be stopped, uh, whether it's uh, over Taiwan or Hong Kong or South China Sea or, or China rules. And I think these are, again, two very different arenas of competition, uh, but they overlap. And I think that was where the strategic concept in Madrid uh, is important for linking in the most tangible way that we've seen um, the Euro-Atlantic and Indo-Pacific regions and the fact that you had the Prime Minister of Japan and of Australia um, and you had uh, the South Korean president um, and New Zealand's leader all in Madrid to embrace this strategic concept in which for the very first time uh, China is singled out as a systemic challenge. When you're the top trading partner of all these countries, you don't like being singled out as a systemic challenge. And right. so China is fuming right now uh, diplomatically about what they did in Madrid. China has, however, been trying to skirt the line uh, and continue to support uh, Russia as much as it can, right? I mean, it's limitless ally, uh, but at the same time, without crossing the United States. And there are some concerns that the United States, you know, whether the United States may at some point be turning a blind eye to what the Chinese are doing. I mean, indeed, North, you know, China has been helping North Korea evade sanctions for quite some time, uh, basically with impunity. But the Western alliance is also ratcheting up technology uh, limitations, gold sanctioning gold, right? I mean, a whole bunch of things that make it a little bit more complicated for Beijing and anybody else to be supporting Moscow. How, are, how, how much help are the Chinese able to give the Russians at this point? And is the international community making that successively harder for Beijing to help Moscow? condemnation of Russia um, and the brutality that they are inflicting on the Ukrainians uh, does make it harder for China to embrace that. But China has been trying to put up, if not a firewall, at least some buffer uh, from political criticism uh, by declaring that they're not providing arms directly to Russia. Um, you had the United States sanction, uh, maybe preemptively, some uh, Chinese companies this past couple of weeks. Um, in the idea that they are somehow supporting the Russian war effort against Ukraine. Um, but you also have U.S. allies and partners putting up their own barriers to how far they'll help Ukraine. Um, so on the one hand, Japan has joined the unprecedented sanctions on Russia, 
Uh, and now you have Russia um, apparently cutting off uh, Japanese investment from Sakhalin 2 gas and oil, which is critical to Hokkaido and part of Japanese economy. Um, so you can see China doesn't even have to do anything and their support for Russia can indirectly uh, hurt some of uh, China's competitors, in this case, Japan. So there is a, a, an, an uncomfortable relationship between uh, the war in Ukraine and the effects it has on China, but also the effects it has on U.S. allies uh, in Asia. Um, one case where you see uh, Asia breaking out with its sort of independent streak is, um, is not surprising uh, from Southeast Asia, and that was Indonesia President Joko Widodo um, going to be the first Asian leader to Ukraine, meeting with Zelensky, carrying a private message to uh, Putin in Moscow uh, about the need for dialogue, um, offering Indonesian good offices for mediation. Uh, of course, going to host both uh, Zelensky and presumably Putin virtually at a G20 summit that Indonesia will be hosting in Bali in November. Um, but but winning, uh, you know, and giving Putin a face-saving way to resume grain shipments out of Ukraine. Uh, that's a, a way of saying that Asia likes to play this uh, balancing act in third way, and, and Indonesia uh, has done this in the past over the South China Sea, and here they are trying to do it on the Ukraine war. Um, for Japan and for Australia, Korea, and New Zealand, though, uh, embracing the strategic concept is uh, sort of in-your-face China. Uh, we are not going to back down. We are going to stand up to the kind of uh, things that were in that strategic concept, talking about malicious hybrid cyber uh, disinformation and coercive behavior, um, trying to uh, control the supply chains and technology sectors. Um, all of those are grading on, on Beijing right now. Um, and so Beijing is not really looking at supporting Russia in a full-throated way, but they are talking about the uh, evil of sanctions. And they're even bringing up the 1999 NATO bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade as proof that NATO is the destabilizing force here, not China. Um, let me uh, uh, bring uh, Chris uh, into the discussion. Uh, very productive, um, it, time and again, uh, evidence of Joe Biden, uh, the statesman, uh, a lot of discussion on the role that he played in brokering at least uh, some progress in uh, moving uh, the um, uh, Swedish, uh, Finnish ball uh, forward, uh, at, at least finding some face-saving way to move that ball forward uh, by mollifying the Turks a little bit, even if um, Erdogan is is still, um, you know, making strident pronouncements, and we'll see about that, and and we'll see, right? Um, Orban doesn't have to stop this now; he can stop it later uh, on on Putin's behalf. Uh, what were your takeaways, uh, Chris? And does this change any of the narratives surrounding the president and any of the challenges? I mean, is he, you know, the George H. W. Bush here of of racking up foreign policy accomplishments that ultimately don't get him any domestic points? Well, it certainly seems that way if you you know dive deep into what people are writing about and talking about on social media back, back here at home. Um, I mean, a very successful week. Um, you, you know, the guests before me really you know ticked off all, all of the things that uh, the president did right. Um, I, I would just say as as we head into the Fourth of July weekend and the the heart of summer, um, you know, uh, most Americans are dealing with high gas prices. Um, they're dealing with inflation. They're trying to make sense of what's going on with the latest Supreme Court decisions. They're trying to figure out where the country is going to go on gun violence. Um, there's just a there's a lot of domestic churn that um, I, I think, from a messaging standpoint, if the president's going to be successful. He and his team have to come home and try to connect very succinctly and clearly what 
his leadership is doing overseas and how that affects American lives at home. And his ability to do that, to me, the first referendum on that will be in the, you know, in the fall, um, in the congressional elections. Uh, and, and then we'll see how it plays out, um, you, you know, when and if he runs for reelection. I liked your uh, view that Turkey uh, is, uh, go ahead, give, give the analogy. I, oh, that's I, a great analogy. I texted you that as Dove was talking, I mean, it, you know, Turkey has become the Joe Manchin of NATO and maybe it's Joe Manchin has become the Turkey of the Congress, uh, you know, because the, the history of Turkey's behavior is, is well known, but I mean, you, you know, you, you do question what, what it's going to cost us, what it's going to cost the president um, in dealing with Turkey. And he, he has the same problems here at home, right? I mean, he's in many ways, he's having to, um, because he, I, I think is a genuine statesman and a, um, a, a, a solid broker, both at home and abroad. I mean, I mean, he has the real trouble of having to give away a lot to get his agenda done. And again, you see that at NATO, you see it in the Congress. I mean, that that's no news to our audience. I mean, presidents have had to do that for generations. I, I just think that it's particularly complex um, and particularly magnified in today's media environment. Indeed. Um, I'm, I'm very cognizant on time, and there's an important topic that I want to go around the horn on, uh, if, if everybody will allow me, in terms of what the impact of some of these Supreme Court decisions are going to be on the Pentagon. And I want uh, Chris to start that conversation. And Jim, you were in the United States Navy. Patrick, you were in the United States Navy. Dove, you've devoted your entire life to national security and served in the Pentagon in numerous capacities. Uh, You know, first, Dove, uh, quickly on Naftali uh, Bennett, uh, what's next for Israel? Uh, He's not going to stand. Give us kind of a quick wrap up on what we're seeing in in Israel. Anything new regarding the president's trip to the Gulf, uh, and as well any update on on Iran? Because astonishingly, those talks are somehow continuing as if they're going to bear fruit. But anyway, give give us a quick update on all of that. Well, uh, Bibi failed to uh, Netanyahu failed to pull together sixty one votes to avoid uh, an election. So he's got an election. Parliament dissolved. Uh, Naftali Bennett no longer is prime minister. That's uh, Mr. Lapid instead. And so when the president visits Israel uh, this month, he will meet with Lapid. Um, There's still a lot of expectation that when he goes to Saudi Arabia, there'll be some uh, public uh, announcement of uh, a more open relationship between Israel and the Saudis. Uh, But you know what? We won't know that until it actually happens. you, you never can predict anything uh, in the Middle East and, and be proved right. Uh, on Iran, that's the classic case of that. The, the latest talks uh, broke down uh, and the Iranians said, no, we're, we're going to continue to talk. Uh, and of course, that gives hope to the people in the administration who desperately, and I underline desperately, want an Iran deal. Um, I wouldn't bet the family farm on it. But then again, uh, you just never know till something happens. Uh, it is interesting that the Iranians were not the ones to say, forget about it. What did you find interesting about that? Well, because uh, it seems to me that uh, from what I'm hearing, the Iranians, uh, they, they're refocusing their uh, economic options. They're dealing much more with China. They're dealing with India. Uh, they claim they're not hurting half as much as people think they're hurting. Um, And they're speaking out of both sides of their mouth, obviously, because they do want the sanctions to be removed. 
Um, and so that is probably the reason why they don't want to walk away from it entirely. And, and frankly, they'd like to blame us rather than take the blame themselves. Um, and, and who are the candidates uh, in the Israeli election? Right. So uh, clearly Lapid, uh, clearly Bibi, uh, Naftali Bennett will not be in it. Who are going to be, you know, from from your standpoint, who are the who are the guys to watch going into this? Or is this going to be kind of a coronation? Well, I think Bibi hopes it'll be a coronation. And uh, there is a lot of disenchantment uh, within the ultra orthodox parties. Uh, and those people who normally vote ultra-Orthodox could vote Likud, which is Bibi's party. But that doesn't matter because the ultra-Orthodox would always be in, in a Bibi coalition anyway. Right. Uh, the, the Arab party uh, that it has been in the government seems to be taking all of this in stride. Uh, and it's not clear what they would do. Bibi has said right now there's no way he'll have an Arab party in his government. But then again, BB is BB. And so you just have no idea what he'll really do until he does it. It ain't over till it's over, Dove. It ain't over till it's over. Well, you know, he, he and Mr. Erdogan and Mr. Orban and Mr. Trump, uh, they're a fraternity. Uh, indeed. Uh, and, and, and obviously, as we're seeing you know, through the January 6 hearings, that it is uh, somewhat uh, more, uh, uh, you know, the, the astonishing revelations indeed uh, that indicate a whole series of potential challenges. And Liz Cheney, obviously, uh, speaking at the Reagan Institute um, or at the Reagan uh, Museum and Library uh, as a Reagan Institute event. Uh, and, you know, absolutely um, laudatory comments being made by the Wyoming uh, Republican. Trump has said that despite his annoyance at some of the things Netanyahu's done, uh, he's going to su probably support him. And I, frankly, I think he's watching Bibi, who is under indictment uh, and still could be prime minister again. And I think given what just happened in the, in the latest revelations coming out of January 6th, my guess is uh, Mr. Trump and certainly his lawyers are watching Bibi's behavior very closely. The worst element of this is the United States as a model. And when the United States behaves within the model, it encourages good behavior. When the United States and its leaders do not behave in that spirit as a constitutional republic, you are just encouraging other people to misbehave even if it includes some of our closest allies and partners who look at this behavior. You and I, Dove, know a lot of British officials. They were looking at Trump, listening to it. You know, once, you know, why, well, why don't we have a Fox News here? And, why, you know, and, and so, well, we have to create that and we have to create the conditions to sort of get what we want. And it's a it's a can be a dog catching a car. You caught the Brexit car, but it's causing a whole bunch of problems. Uh, ultimately, even if um, you, you wanted to do that. Boris Johnson, uh, it, it's exactly the same problem as well. Uh, and there, you know, there were just two by-elections in Britain and they both crushed the conservative candidates. And, and uh, again, it's because uh, Johnson's behavior, uh, although he's done some very good things like uh, supporting you being out front on Ukraine, uh, has definitely... Uh, smacks of many of the things that smells in Washington. Uh, in, in, indeed. Um, we, we've got about seven, eight minutes. Chris uh, is, is timing me and trying to keep it, but I want to kind of go around the horn and Chris start off with you on what are these, what are the challenges these Supreme Court decisions create for the Pentagon? Um, the Pentagon likes uniform policies, uh, you know, so the transgender issue was, hey, whether, whether they're 
10,000, 100,000, or 10, we need to have consistent policies. Uh, and so each one of these social things that happens, the Pentagon takes them very seriously in terms of, okay, well, wait a minute, what's a consistent policy? Um, we have military members who are in states that will be outlawing abortions. Um, um, you, you, on, on guns, uh, you know, there was this challenge, oh, you know, it's okay for them to have guns because they're military members, but the military controls guns pretty carefully when you're on post and base. Uh, and if you look at it on religion and the separation of church and state, the Pentagon has been fighting a battle on those who want to blur it, uh, evening prayers for people who may not want to pray, but ultimately end up going to some of these meetings because they know, well, the boss is very religious. If I don't show up, then I have a ding against me. Um, and I don't think that that's necessarily fair in a system that should separate church uh, and state. Uh, and indeed, people like Lauren Boebert and others saying, well, the separation of church and state is a fiction anyway. How does all of this affect? And, uh, you know, Jim, want to get your sense. Patrick, you, because you've commanded uh, men and women uh, in uniform. Chris, kind of give us your sense on the challenges that this presents the department. Um, and and why we ain't even we're at the beginning we're in the beginning of the beginning of the beginning in terms of these challenges. So to give us your sense, Jim, yours, uh, Patrick, yours, and Dove, bring us home on it. Go ahead. The challenges are are many. They range across a variety of different areas, and and Jim and and Patrick and Dove can kind of hit on their experience. Whenever these decisions are made, whether they're viewed as a positive or as a negative, um, you, you know the the most obvious is is the the influence that it has on the morale of troops. And, you know, people may roll their eyes to that, but it's not inconsequential. The, the second is, is, okay, what does this mean now for troops living on base? And so you have to figure that out. And, um, you, you know, how does, how does that fit? So that, that burns up uh, staff calories and time that could otherwise be used. And then you have to, you, you know, figure out based on those decisions, um, you, you know, they're not free as Dove can talk to. I mean, a lot of times the, the decisions and the accommodations that you have to make for these decisions cost money. And that's money that you didn't anticipate. Um, so, you know, as the Pentagon, in the example of the, the abortion decision, as the Pentagon seeks to um, maintain the the access of this type of healthcare to uh, servicemen and women. And as they try to figure out how they'll do that, there's a cost associated with that. And, and that's a cost that, you know, wasn't previously uh, accounted for. So you have to work through that. So all of this churn, um, in my opinion, you know, it, it, it takes away from what is the day-to-day -day mission of, of the Pentagon. And, and I mean, you, you know, the, the Pentagon and the Department of Defense is, it's made up of professionals and they'll figure it out. But um, the, these are not, I, I guess, cost and time neutral decisions um, as, uh, as the men and women that work in the Pentagon and OSD and the services have to work through all this. And it's just, you know, sort of one thing after the other. Uh, and I, I want to point out, right, I mean, if a military member um, through sexual assault or rape, right? The government would, uh, or the Pentagon would cover uh, the abortion procedure. Whereas uh, if the military member uh, does become pregnant, then that would be something that, that they would uh, have to uh, go onto the local economy in order to get resolved, right? And get external healthcare uh, for that. Right. And I mean, you know, and I would just add one other thing is I heard from folks that are of my age and, and younger. I mean, there was a real head scratcher. It, it was a real head scratcher, particularly on the abortion decision that, you know, folks asked, hey, look, we just spent 20 years in Afghanistan and, and a central part of that effort turned into expanding and protecting the rights of Afghan women. 
um, how, how do I square this latest decision with that effort uh, that we were doing in Afghanistan? For some, it was a real uh, punch in the gut as, as they try to figure out, you know, sort of how this fits into what the United States stands for. An excellent point. Um, Jim, uh, give, us, give us your sense, Patrick, and then Dove. Uh, on what are the challenges that all of these decisions cause, right? I mean, whether it's uh, public prayer, um, I'm astonished how much more religious in the 40 years I've been associated with the military or cognizant of my uh, an association with the military, um, much more religiosity today than there was, um, you know, in the early 1970s, which is where my uh, thinking reaches back to. Um, you know, Jim, you know, start us off, Patrick, and then, and then Dove, just across the piece. Well, I, I think you know, I think the only point I want to make here is these Supreme Court decisions, particularly Roe, have really uh, had an impact in Europe, uh, and the impact there is uh, it's once again uh, we've kind of stunned our allies about how unpredictable we are, and we've cast them into think wondering so where are we headed, and it kind of goes back to what was just said about Afghanistan in some ways. I mean the same kind of thing where. The U.S. seemed to be uh, on one trajectory, and that was reflected in, in all the work being done with women in Afghanistan. Um, uh, and that was symbolic of that trajectory that the U.S. was on. And then, boom, you have Roe. And now uh, there's also the, you know, the gun control uh, uh, law that was overturned, Sullivan, I think, uh, in New York, and, uh, and also just this carbon uh, capping uh, that was overturned yesterday, I guess it was. Uh, we can we are we are now um, looking like we're on another trajectory and for our allies who deal with these same issues, abortion and this type of thing. Uh, and a lot of times kind of take the cue from the U.S. A lot of times in terms of U.S. progressive uh, attitudes towards social issues uh, that that can roll over into Europe, which tends to be more conservative, some parts, uh, but it can help set the set, set a trend going. All of a sudden, we are we're we're retrograde, and so allies are looking at us uh, again, like, "Oh my goodness, um, is this uh, a sign that Trumpism is alive and well, and uh, it's infected the highest court of the land in the United States?" And this is really what the trajectory is that the United States is on, uh, and this is going to be reflected in the next president. So there's so so all of this that's happening. Uh, and that our armed forces are having to deal with, as you point out, it, it's it, it really has an impact in Europe. Uh, you're not going to, it's not necessarily going to be headlines and this type of thing, but I can guarantee you in ministries of foreign affairs and in prime minister's offices and in their ministries of defense and in the military services too, um, this is just casting a, uh, a real, uh, not just casting doubt, but it's, it's worrying allies about so where really is, what is the trajectory the United States is on? Right. Where are they really going? And if it's back towards Trump, what do we do to hedge? Um, let me uh, shift gears a little bit because Dove has got to punch out. Dove, uh, go ahead. And Patrick, uh, thanks for your patience. We'll come to you in a minute. Go ahead, Dove. A uh, couple of points. First, uh, in response to uh, the road decision, the Israelis just announced uh, that they were going to expand abortion rights. It's kind of an interesting reaction. Uh, in terms of our own uh, military, there are two observations I would make. One, I don't know how this is going to affect retention and recruitment. Now, let me tell you why. It's the second observation. Suppose you're a woman serving in Texas and uh, you want an abortion. You haven't been raped. 
And as you said, Vago, uh, you go out on your own. Well, you can't do it in Texas anymore. Uh, and if you look at where we have so many bases and you correlate those with the states that have that have or will have abortion restrictions, you can begin to see where it's going to be very, very difficult for women in the military. Uh, they can't just go running off to New York or Illinois. And I wonder how that will affect uh, retention and recruitment. Um, these second and third order effects, and you heard about the costs uh, a little earlier just now, um, we haven't thought those through at all. And of course, the court certainly did not think those through and maybe didn't care if it didn't. Um, and uh, right, I mean, there are all sorts of uh, challenges, right, especially if you have uh, some states talking about interdicting women from crossing interstate lines, even though uh, the decision says that uh, they, they don't necessarily want to do that, but there are some states that are going to push that. Um, I, I believe all the things the court said should not be taken at face value. They didn't just mean this as a narrow thing uh, on the EPA. I believe it is an assault on the government's regulatory power and interpretation power, and that affects the Pentagon as well, uh, right, in terms of how it's going to interpret some environmental regulations. As they pass through the EPA, they get adjusted by the Pentagon because there's almost always a national uh, security out for some of this stuff, and so uh, what, uh, what that means ultimately. Dove, thanks very much. Hope you have a great uh, holiday with uh, family and look forward to having you back on again next week. Uh, Patrick, uh, why, don't, why don't you give us uh, your sense and then we can uh, wrap the show on you. Go ahead. Well, Vago, just to uh, riff off the previous comments, I mean, I think this uh, does affect our military uh, personnel. It affects uh, the command of those personnel. It affects the military in our society, and it affects the military and U.S. prestige abroad. So taking those in order, um, I think this will have an effect on uh, retention and cohesion. Um, it will um, uh, tend to uh, bring the family, the military family into greater tension, just as it's a cross section of our society and that, and that society is in tension over these issues. Um, I think the um, society part is that the military has been on a pedestal almost as an institution in the United States, uh, having heavily recovered from uh, the downturn during Vietnam War, for instance, um, when the military was reviled uh, by much of the public. Um, and I think now we're going to we're see the military possibly pitted against society uh, because as it as it tries to protect the rights of women and deliver uh, health care, for instance, uh, to women and health services, um, that could mean that it has to go against the grain of some of the politics in our society. At the same time, um, you know, the Supreme Court's legislating, forcing legislation uh, to take up the slack here. It's, it's saying, look, the courts have made their decisions. So it's, it's incumbent upon state and federal legislators to uh, take up these thorny issues again and get serious. And that, that could indirectly hurt um, the harmony of bipartisanship on defense policy. Uh, we don't know how far and how deep this will go. Internationally, uh, a democracy and human rights agenda becomes more problematic um, when you uh, start to see this uh, raked over the coals uh, in the press abroad. Um, and um, I think the, uh, uh, there, all of these things are, are, can be limited and, and can be actually part of a healthy democracy. But at the moment, um, I think right now, uh, the military is in a more precarious situation because of what's happening uh, over these legal decisions. And Chris, do you have any uh, last thoughts as we wrap the program up this week? 
all of the things that we talked about, whether it was Jim talking about all of the things happening in uh, in the European theater or Patrick talking about what's happening in the Indo uh, PACOM theater. Uh, I mean, the military is very busy. It's, it's pulled in a lot of different directions. And in many ways, this is the last thing that you know, the service men and women and people that lead them need right now as they seek to kind of get their arms around a, a, a quickly changing and quickly complicating mission. Um, that This just makes doing that mission harder and harder. Agreed. Uh, everybody, uh, no matter how good you are, are bandwidth limited. Uh, and the more you add, uh, the more, the less you have, uh, the, mo- the more stuff you have to juggle, the less you have for stuff that might be really, really important uh, and more important. Guys, thanks very much. Hope everybody has a great Independence Day uh, holiday. I just want to remind our audience uh, that our Sunday roundtable will not be on Sunday as it normally is. We're going to be running that on uh, Independence Day and hope you guys join and tune in for that. And then we get to regular order uh, once we get past the uh, three or four day holidays. Hope everybody has a great Independence Day holiday. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a great week. Uh, Have a great weekend and a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks very much, everybody. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.